Amen. Let's let's go to the Lord and pray together. Father, we come before you this morning and we come and recognize that in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And Father, we pant for you. We long for you. Uh, we, we don't uh, need more of those things that are uh, distractions of you or from you. Um, but we want all of our life to be centered upon you, upon Christ, upon the gospel, upon your word. Um, that it, from every angle and every turn that we would be about the God who is over all things, the one who is in control, the one who is uh, at work uh, in ways, a thousand different ways in our world, in our lives, for the glory of your name, that we are here for but a moment and but a time in this world for us, here and now. Um, But we know that you are always at work throughout the years and years and years of history and onto the years and to the future and onto into eternity even as well as we recognize uh, that you are God over all things and that you are work at work in your children, Lord. Um, you're at work in me. You're at work in your children and those who are listening right now, those who are watching Right now, you are at work. You are conforming your children into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, the one who is the God-man, who is perfect, sinless, and good. And yet, in your mercy upon mercies, though we are none of those things, you would send your Son to die for us and to take our place, that he bore the wrath in our place, and that through him, We have life and life eternal, life everlasting with you because you are and in you is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so we come, Father, panting for you. We know you do not fail. We know that Christ is enough. And so may we come this morning and may we come and drink fully from you recognizing that in you is bounty and infinite joy. And so may we come and glory in you now as we turn to your word. Help us to receive your word. May you humble us and help us for your name's sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Right. Well, today, this morning, we will be again in the Gospel of John. So you can go ahead and turn there uh, to John chapter 4. Now, when I was in high school, during my junior and senior years, I played football. And during the summer, uh, you know, the practices were especially intense. And, of course, you can imagine as well that alongside it being summer in Oklahoma... Uh, we had some hot summers there as well, and so uh, we, would, we would have to walk through some intense heat as we are practicing. But, you know, at the end of our practices, um, we would often end them uh, by sprinting across 
the field back and forth. And so this is after, you know, having practiced, having, uh, you know, tackled each other and everything else. And so now we are ending our practice uh, already exhausted, sprinting uh, across the field. And so there are many things that come alongside with that, as you can imagine. And of course, you know, aching muscles, uh, you know, uh, being out of breath. But in particular, one that presses on you is thirst. You know, and as coaches do, we were not allowed to get a drink until the coach said, all right, break time, go get your drink. And so um, you can imagine, though, and you yourselves have personally experienced this, as some of you have. I'm sure all of us have. Even this past weekend, I did, in mo- after mowing our, lo- our lawn. Um, but we went to the water and we gulped it down with a zeal. <laughs> and so we were happy to have water finally that we longed for and we took it in. And so we were physically needing water. And now that water, of course, was delightful to have. Um, but you know what? We'll, we'll need it again. Every day and all the time, we always are in need of water, and there is a true sense in which the water that we get here, it never truly fully satisfies. On average, you cannot survive but only two to three days without water. And so if you don't have it, you die. Well, in our passage this morning, we come to another sort of water. This is a water that goes beyond your physical thirst. It's a kind of water that without it, you will not only remain thirsty and unsatisfied, but you will remain spiritually dead forever. And so this morning we come to this glorious and wonderful everlasting spring that wells up to eternal life. So more specifically, we see here that Jesus came to give water that never fails to satisfy. Do you want that water? I mean, wow, a water that never ceases to satisfy. So if you have a Bible, then please turn with me, if you have not already, to the Gospel of John. And we will be in John chapter 4, verses one through 15. So may God help us and receive in full his good word. John chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had received or had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria, and so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. 
for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Here we have the initial meeting and discussion between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And this morning we will look at the first half even that I just read for us. And next Sunday, Lord willing, we will look at the second half of this discussion and dialogue between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Well, here in the opening verses, there is an underlying point that we would be right to observe. Now, it's not the main point of this passage, but it is surely a point that we need to see here. And so we first see the prerogative of the divine mission. So we see the prerogative of the divine mission. So at first glance, you would uh, or you could come to really all sorts of conclusions regarding why Jesus left Judea. We're plainly told here that Jesus left after learning that the Pharisees had found out about him. So we, we hear that, we see that, okay, we've got that. Um, he was gaining quite a following. Many were starting to come and, and follow him, that such that he, we even saw last week that the, uh, John's disciples, they asked, you know, well, what about all these people that are going to Jesus? What do you think about that, John? And so Jesus is indeed gaining a good deal of people coming to follow him. And so the Pharisees, along these lines, noticed that this was the case as well. Now, at this point, the Pharisees were likely keeping an eye on Jesus, but they weren't quite to the point where they had a full-fledged effort to put Jesus to death, or even a, a whole plan in place to say, this is a man that we need to end, that we need to put away from us. And so that wasn't yet quite underway so whatever their intent at this point, though, you may be tempted to think that Jesus here, that he, he finds out that the Pharisees learned about 
his ministry, how it's uh, being effective, it's growing. And so now, out of fear, Jesus kind of flees the scene. And so he leaves out of fear. But if you know Jesus, you know that he is certainly not one who is inclined to go somewhere or not go somewhere out of a fear of man. And there are a number of reasons why I say this, and more explicitly from the text and surrounding passages here. And the first is that we've really already seen this kind of desire in this heart of Christ to please his Father. That he is not a man who goes about fearing other people. So, John chapter 2. So, before everyone present, he goes and he cleanses the temple out of zeal for his father's house. He turns over the tables and he pours out the coins of the money changers. And so, he is right there. You see that he is not out simply to be a man pleaser. He is not out and about thinking, oh no, I wonder if these people and how they're thinking of me, and maybe I need to be afraid of what they think, and if I turn off this table too zealously, maybe they might you know, think of me this way. He's not going about doing that. We see that Jesus is entrusting himself to the Father. And perhaps another place we could see this, even just a few verses down from when Jesus cleansed the temple, is that he does not go about entrusting himself to just anyone because he knew what was in all people. But we have more reasons than that. A second reason is John 3.35 and John 5.19. We could go to more places, but we'll land with these two. So John 3.35, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Are you inclined to fear someone else if everything is yours? He has all authority over all things and lives at the bidding of his Father. That's John 3.35, John 5.19. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does... That the Son does likewise. So Jesus, he lives according to the prerogative, not of Pharisees or of the fear of men, but of the Father. So this is not a man that cowers at the bidding of men. All things are his. And so he does as the Father does. So that's a second reason. A third reason Jesus never shows that he fears the Pharisees or anyone. Instead, again and again, Jesus will speak words that if he was trying not to offend the Pharisees, well, he didn't do a very good job of not, not doing that. Matthew 23, where he rebukes them. And so Jesus, he will go and he will speak these kind of words that ought to have pierced the hearts of the Pharisees. And you can know that Jesus intended that. That they would have repented. That would have been glorious at hearing Matthew 23. But instead, 
what were they? They were offended and infuriated. How dare you talk to us like that? And so no, Jesus was not afraid. That was not why he was leaving. And like Jesus, don't fear Pharisees. Don't fear others. Don't live at the whims of trying and aiming and always trying to please people and thinking, well, what do they think of me? What are they going to, you know, what, if I do this, if I maneuver my life or these words exactly right, if I, if I do this and that, then the people might think well of me, my reputation will grow, and I'll be this and this and this. That is not the way that God he wants us to live. And more specifically, in this point, like Jesus, don't fear the Pharisees. So don't fear those who practice or preach much, but they do little. Don't fear those who will wield the Bible to pile on burdens and weights without lifting a finger to help. Do not fear those who do deeds to be seen by others, those who exalt themselves. They pray so that you can see them, so that everyone around can hear them. They add law to law and rule to rule while neglecting justice, mercy, and faithfulness. They are all external, while inside they are full of dead bodies. And do not fear those who, have, who would like nothing better than that those who truly know Christ would flee from the church and from the body of Christ. And these people, they do roam about us. They're not just back in Jesus' day. They are among us today as well. I remember a church whose leaders had essentially had all their members bound up in chains by what they had said. While they went about doing just the opposite. And so they would preach from their pulpits, chains, chains, with a smile, while they themselves told themselves, freedom, freedom. But even as we aren't the fear Pharisees that may be around us, and there are those around us, do be careful of the Pharisee that may be within us, that may be within you. You may say to this, well, you know, we're all sinners, aren't we? I mean, there's all a bit of Pharisee in us. Yeah, but that, that really detracts from what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees, doesn't it? Matthew 23 can just be, is, is kind of pushed aside. Well, you know, we all have a, have a bit of hypocrisy in us, which, you know, is true. We are sinners. But hypocrisy is never a virtue. And it is, is never something that we should simply think, well, you know, I really am not quite this. this. I'm just a sinner and that's fine. Well, that, that is not fine. We are not to be okay with sin against the living God. Hypocrisy is never a virtue. And my, I remember a, a community that was totally disillusioned 
with the Christians in that area because of this exact reason, hypocrisy. They would not go into churches because they knew who were in churches. Hypocrisy is evil and Jesus treats it as evil and so should we. So we aren't to preach nor live as though this gospel has added only another form of burdens and chains for us to bear. Nor are we to live as though this gospel has no direct bearing on our lives at all. So, what is it for you? Is this the gospel that you have? A gospel that trades in one set of chains for another set of chains? A gospel of hypocrisy? Or, perhaps you know you're hearing this, and you have heard all these things, and you have found that you are a Pharisee. Now what are you to do? Well, like the tax collector, throw off all your pride, and cast aside self-reliance, and pray to God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because that's exactly what the Pharisees weren't doing. They thought, I am fine. While they were blind, leading the blind. Leading people off of cliffs. Jesus did not come for the righteous as he's talking to the Pharisees. I came for sinners. And so, you come to God recognizing you are a sinner. And you will not find then and there, Christ standing over you with arms folded like, no, no, you are a Pharisee and I don't take in Pharisees. But when you cry out to God and cry out to Him and that He would have mercy on you, a sinner, Christ is there with arms ready and glad to receive you in. He came for such as these sinners. And so, we don't need to fear Pharisees. We do need to examine our own hearts and lives. And then also we need to see here, like Jesus, whose eyes were set on the divine mission, we need to prioritize the mission of God. We need to prioritize the mission of God in our lives. Jesus, in everything he did, He wanted to do the will of his Father. And you may be hearing that and just say, well, that was Jesus. (laughs) I mean, he's the God-man. Well, we are intended to see his life, to see him walking, and not to say, that's not what I can be. That is, we see his life, we see what he is, and we say, that's what I am to be. So at every turn, we are to be about the will of our Father. In all things, this phrase here, in verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria, it means more than that he had to go that way. So, you know, there were many at the time, uh, the Jews and Samaritans, they had very much a hostility one between the other, and so they would often go around Samaria. But in this case, we see... Here, this was no mere necessity. Um, 
it was, a, it was more than simply geography that was going on here. He had to go through Samaria. It was the shortest route. But many were willing to go around that area because of the Samaritans. And so there is a sense that it was necessary, as in Jesus was following the will of his Father by going into Samaria. And that, in the same way, so also you and I, in every place, at every point in your life, in all that you do, this is to be your priority. And what is this mission? Where do we find our directives for our days? Well, we find it in this book. Here is the clear, good, and sure will and revelation of God. So fulfill your calling and mission. And our calling and mission is this. No, be conformed to, live for, and proclaim Christ. If you're ever unclear in any time of any day of any hour of your life, that is always your calling and your mission. You can do that here. You can do it uh, across the world. You can do it in other countries. You can do it in other nations. You can do it anywhere and everywhere. That is your calling and mission. And You may be struggling with some issue or some decision you must make. Well, here you are freed to see just what you are called to do. Prioritize the mission of God. That is always the answer. No, be conformed to, live for, and proclaim Christ where you are and wherever you may be. And that is God's will for you. Second, the second point that we can glean from these words here in this, these verses, we see here that Jesus extended grace to all people. Jesus extended grace to all people. So traveling through Samaria, Jesus, as the God-man, he and his humanity became tired, just like any of us. That's a kind of a side point we see that you see his humanity here, but we aren't like magnifying that point. But we see, and so wearied from traveling, he rests at the sixth hour or noon at Jacob's well. And while he's there, a woman of Samaria, she comes and she comes to draw water. And he only says three words to her here, or four, give me, or Four, <laughs> give me a drink. But that is enough. With just these words, we see Jesus is different than others at this time. Perhaps something akin to the disdain that would have been felt between like in Hatfield and McCoy, if you know uh, the conflict there. So would have been an encounter between a Jew and a Samaritan at this time. Jews and Samaritans, they were not on friendly terms. The Jews, they saw the Samaritans as unclean, even defiled, or even further, and this is not exaggerating, as scum. They had bouts of conflict between one another, even to the point of violence. They believed differently, the Samaritans did, than the Jews. 
They held that the Pentateuch was their only Bible, the first five books of the Bible were their Bible, and everything else was left out. They worshipped differently, even building a temple nearby on Mount Gerizim. So they would say, our temple is not in Jerusalem, it is here. And that's a big difference. (laughs) Both of those are. So in the eyes of the Jews, even the items that were touched, so touching even this, or touching anything, that a Samaritan having touched something, for them it would mean that that item was tainted. They would say, unclean, don't get a drink from her, Jesus. She will have to use that jar that she touched to get you water, and you don't want water from her. Yet, what does Jesus do? He breaks the barriers, and he goes and he talks with her. We see that Jesus, he receives the despised, the rejected, and the outcast. And these were what the Samaritans were to the Jews. But even more so, this woman. Why do I say, why do I say that? Why, why is it more the case with this woman in particular? Well, first, she was a woman. <laughs> and a conversation between a woman and, or a man and a woman alone at this time could be seen as flirtatious, perhaps in the uh, most positive way you could see it, or in the most negative way it could be see at, seen as indecent. Uh, they even had a saying that if you spoke more than 20 minutes with a woman, uh, you may have done something uh, that you shouldn't have done with her. And so he was speaking to her, though, and he did speak to her at length. So second, she came alone, and she came at noon. Now, you, you'd hear that and read that and just kind of pass over it, but those are also notable here. Women would not normally come alone, nor would they come at noon. They would come in the morning, or they would come in the evening, but they would not come at noon, and they also would not come alone. And so something is out of sorts with her in particular. She was an outcast among the outcasts. So hear that point, because Jesus is already talking with her. And then third, we remember she also was a Samaritan, and Jesus was a Jew. So every possible reason you could have, right? at least in their eyes, to stay away from her. You wouldn't get water from this woman. You wouldn't ask her for a drink. I don't care how thirsty you are. You know, I once remember talking to a member of a church about my desire to share the gospel in a certain area nearby. And I remember what this person said. Uh, I can't, I won't forget it. You know, he told me, oh, we'd rather not have people like that at our church. They can stay over there, and we'll stay over here. And, you know, I'd like to say that that is not 
common, but there is more cases and so many more instances I could give. That's how people who say they know the Lord are treating others, acting and engaging with others, or not acting and not engaging with others. But thank God, these are not the attitudes and the actions of Christ. That's not what he does for me, for you. He goes to and he takes in anybody and everybody. Don't forget, he just had that conversation with Nicodemus. So he wants the Pharisee to come to him too. And now he talks with a Samaritan at the opposite spectrum of Nicodemus. And any and all who may come, he will take them in. He says, come even. And you may feel that way right now. You have been despised. You have been rejected. You have been outcast. Well, Jesus, he tells you, come. He extends grace to any and all who would come to him. Any and all who would come and run to him and repent and believe. This is the one who can save me, a sinner. I need Jesus. I need him. And he will save you. He will take you in. And I'm happy to know that this gospel is for sinners. Otherwise, I would have never been included in this gospel. And like Christ, in the way he goes and offers this gospel so freely, we are to set this gift before all indiscriminately. We are to set this gift before all indiscriminately. And our tool bag really is not empty. We go with the tools of the Word and the Spirit. And Jesus is with us even to the end of the age. And so, let not your fears of men or their rejection or any other reason you may have for staying away from others or not sharing this good news that would keep you away, even if it's an attitude that says they can stay over There, let those attitudes not be in you. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, recognize He has taken you in, and now He calls you to go and set this gift before all, indiscriminately. So you go over there. Like Jesus, you go and engage others and set before them this Gift, as Jesus, he answers her here. and says in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. What gift is this? Gift of God. What is life everlasting? It is that which is totally and completely given freely by God himself. This is what Jesus is telling the woman. He is able to give this gift through himself. It is him she needs. It is him that is the gift. And it is you and I who need it. This marvelously, fully free, bountiful, and costly gift 
yours in, by, and through him and him alone. It is him you offer to all indiscriminately, not his benefits, but Jesus. It is him you need. He is the gift that we have received, saints. And what a gift he is. And this brings us then to the third point here in our passage. Jesus never ceases to satisfy. Jesus never ceases to satisfy. So we do not offer a half Savior. As in, He can save you, but that's about it. It's not the kind of Jesus we offer. It is Him and all of Him that we need. And when we have Him, He gives us drink that truly satisfies. He gives us living water. And so what is this living water? What is this water that he gives and even sets before this Samaritan woman? Well, we are told expressly, not here, but in John 7, verse 37. Now, even as I read this, though, be mindful that you hear this, John 4, not hearing John 7 yet. So John seven thirty seven. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom, he ha- whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so, the Spirit of God. And that makes a lot of sense why John has already made it clear. Oh, by the way, Jesus wasn't actually the one baptizing everyone. It was his disciples who were doing that. Because Jesus is the one who comes and baptizes people in the Spirit of God. So he's already trying to make clear for us, get this right. But see, this at the same time is not a water devoid of Jesus. Through the Spirit, Jesus gives us himself. The Spirit, he works in our hearts and he awakens and he causes us to be born from above. John chapter 3. We've already seen this. John setting it for us. He's saying, here's Nicodemus' response. Here's a Samaritan woman's response. You see how they kind of are similar here? Born again, living water, put them together. And Jesus said there, John 3, 5, or John 3, 3, one, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The emphasis being on being born from above. The emphasis being on the Spirit of God, bringing life to a dead soul. But similar to Nicodemus, again, the Samaritan woman, she does not understand this. You've asked me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Really? Even though you are a Jew, don't you know that Jews think by even touching the water jar that you're going to be unclean? Do you not know that, Jesus? I mean, come on. And at hearing Jesus' answer, she bluntly emphasizes 
their differences again. Let me read here her response, verse 11. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So her point is, you, you see, Jacob is our father, Jesus, or man who I do not know. <laughs> who are you? I know you're just really, in the end, you're just some passerby, some nobody Jew who makes these grand claims. Now she's right. Jacob's well was deep. It was perhaps the deepest in the land at this point, at a hundred feet or more. But again, like Jesus, or like Nicodemus, she's getting this all mixed up, right? Did not Nicodemus think the same things? He was like, well, how does that work? I mean, being born again. I mean, how did you enter a second time into your mother's womb? I mean, I don't get it. Well, she's essentially doing the same thing here. She's only thinking of literal, a literal well and a literal, and literal water. And so she misses that Jesus' well goes deeper than Jacob's. He gives from a spiritual well that will never run dry. One greater than Jacob is here. He gives to overflowing. Hence, he calls her and he calls us to drink from his well. His well saves. His well satisfies. Where Jeremiah, he says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Where Jeremiah says that, Jesus says, Here I am from the heavens. Be humbled, turn and repent And turn to me, the fountain of living waters, to a well that will never, ever cease to satisfy. And taking Isaiah's words as our own, may your answer and our answer be to this, with joy I will draw water from the wells of salvation. And I will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. Let this be made known to all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 12, 3-6. Let that be our response to this living water. And so drink from this well that wells up to eternal life. You will never be thirsty again. And so examine what well you are drinking from. Does 
your well satisfy? Jesus's does. His is inexhaustible. It's bottomless. It's boundless. It's endless. It's abounding. It's plentiful. It's overflowing and bursting out with living water. And you will not find this drink here. You will not find this in any earthly drink or earthly religion. You won't find it in anything you have in your family, in your religion, in atheism, in Islam, in Hinduism, in Buddhism, nor any other. Not in any cult either. You will not find it in Christian science. You will not find it in Mormonism. You will not find it in Jehovah Witnesses. Because they do not give this living water. Because they do not have the Jesus that gives this living water. So examine your soul. Deep down, you know none of these things are enough. You need more. Examine yourself. Does your drink satisfy? Will it always satisfy now and forever? I remember once talking with a woman that I worked with. And she was essentially, you know, living up all that the world had supposedly to offer her. And she asked me, you know, what was different? What's different about Christianity? Well, I told her, you know, worldly parties, those will come to an end, but life in Christ never does. He satisfies, and his joy overflows forever. Friends, Jesus alone gives drink that will quench your spiritual thirst forever. So, is that what you have? Is that the well from which you are drinking? Let me urge us all. May we go to Christ and drink from His well. May we go to Him to the one who will never cease to satisfy. And he will never fail us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for this living water. We physically need water but you offer us true drink and true water that will never fail that we can come to you and have life and life everlasting may we Lord those who know Christ may we not live or act in such a way as though there's any other water that is greater or more satisfying than Jesus. May you help us before all the world, before those around us, may we gladly show them that we drink from a fountain that never ceases to satisfy. And may we go 
to the well of Christ and continue to drink and drink up and be satisfied in Christ every day, every hour, every moment, knowing that he is ours and we are his. And for those who are here who do not know Christ, we pray, Father, that you would even now help them to see this is where true drink is, true life is, it is in Jesus. May you help them to see the truth of the gospel, that they are sinners in need of the Savior, that they are separated from you, O God. And now apart from Christ, they will never be made right with you. But him who came has come for them to bear all their sin and shame and burdens, and whether they're outcast or rejected. He is the one who comes with open arms. So may they come, may you come, and may we all respond to God's word this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.